Shabbat Shalom. Luke 14, uh, verses 25-35. Now great crowds were traveling with Yeshua, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father, mother, wife, children, brothers, and sisters, and yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. For which of you wanting to build a tower doesn't first sit down and figure out the cost to see if he has had if he has enough to finish it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and isn't able to finish everything, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and wasn't able to finish. Or what king, going to make war against another king, won't first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 to confront the one coming against him with 20,000? If not... While the other is still far away, he sends an ambassador and asks for peace. So, in the same way, whoever does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Therefore, salt is good, but if the salt should lose its flavor, how shall it be made salty again? It is not suitable for the soil or for a manure heap, but is thrown out. The one who has ears to hear, let him hear. Thank you, Linda. How many have um, been hearing about New Year's resolutions? How many don't, don't care? You know, you've heard the old uh, silliness, don't make them, don't break them. I already heard from one of our former members that she has broken one of her New Year's resolutions and feels like a failure. Uh, so, my uh, perspective on that is to maintain a long-haul approach, which simply means, uh, regardless of a resolution here, there, or yon, I believe we need to point our noses in the right direction and then expect that God will bring us along. You know, one of uh, part of that is the fact that I have cultivated the habit of looking for mile markers. You know, when you drive on the highway and it happens to be one of those slow moments, you can see the mile markers as you're going from one direction to the other. And uh, so I like to take this notion of mile markers and mix it with another metaphor, another picture that is first fruits and simply to observe where God has brought us uh, over the past year, over the past couple of years, notice progress that has taken place and then take the opportunity then to say, thank you God. Thank you, God, for this particular type of progress that has been taking place. You know, because life gets so busy and we get preoccupied and our screen gets filled with one thing or another and we barely have an opportunity to digest what has just taken place and something else threatens to crowd our screen. Do you know what I'm talking about? 
And so it is healthy, profitable, uh, not to mention what it does to our spiritual life, that we are able to see what has taken place over the past uh, several years and uh, stop and say, thank you, Lord. And I, for one, as I was thinking about this person being sick, that person being sick, the other person being sick, and recognizing the fact that I am wearing multiple yarmulkes today, I used that as an opportunity to stop and say, thank you, Lord, that you have been raising up additional guys so that I'm able to focus on what I feel God has called me to do, and that is to proclaim the Word of God. And that, by the way, has been my, my goal over a number of years, is to, to do what Scripture tells us to do. We who are tasked with spiritual leadership, and that is to equip and raise up others and release them to do the work of the kingdom of God, rather than operate as if the whole kingdom of God rests on our shoulders. No thank you. Been there, done that. I, I have been thoroughly cured of the messianic complex. I know who is God and who is not. And so my goal, um, and, and I look for these opportunities to make mile markers, uh, the uh, calendar year, the Jewish New Year, birthdays, and so on, look for opportunities to say, okay, what has taken place? Where do I see that God has brought about growth and development and maturation? And when I seem to be clueless, which is often the case, then I ask for divine enlightenment Meaning, I, I ask God to point to things where there has been progress. Because, Lord knows, all of us can major on the negatives. And I believe that part of our growth as followers of Yeshua is to learn to accentuate the positive. Not to be la-la... Pollyannic kind of uh, person who ignores difficult things, but l rather learn to see the hand of God at work and say, yes, God, you are doing stuff and I want to be right behind you. I want to be following and working according to what it is that you're doing. So a major part of that is, for me has become a theme verse from Hosea 6.3, let us acknowledge the Lord, let us press on to acknowledge him, for as surely as the sun rises, he will appear. He will come to us like the winter rains, like the spring rains, the water that water the earth. And I see two parts there. I see, I see our component in pressing. And by the way, the Hebrew word there is very strong. It has a sense of chasing chasing after God uh, to know him because as we do that then there is the guarantee here is that he will appear 
as the Word of God tells us over and over again, those that seek me earnestly will find me. In other words, God will not hold you, um, it will not be indebted to you, but rather as you reach out, you know that the Lord has already been waiting to reach out to you. And that's our desire, is to grow in grace and knowledge of the Lord. And I've, I've been feeling led to put this out for everybody else at, in our congregational mishpacha, both on Shabbat mornings during the messages and also on Wednesday nights uh, through the Bible study of what is involved in pursuing, following, pressing after the Lord. And I feel that that requires a measure of holy chutzpah because we're seeing things around us get darker and darker. And, and I certainly am not interested in joining the choruses of people who uh, speak about the evils that are going on. However, you have to be uh, totally oblivious not to no notice the fact that things are becoming more and more difficult. And we can take a passive approach or we can take what I believe is a scriptural approach that the grace of God has to be more strongly manifested or displayed when there is much more, a uh, greater amount of darkness being displayed. So rather than retrenching and Surrounding ourselves in a circle of wagons, I believe that the mandate that God gives us is to press forth and to not only persevere in a passive sense, but to press forth because the kingdom of God has to expand vigorously uh, in the midst of darkness. So following the Lord is the theme that the Lord has laid on my heart. And as you can imagine, it's an active, it's a very active notion. In contrast to saying, I am a believer, you want to say, I'm a follower of Messiah. Now, this is in no way, shape, or form to minimize the life of faith because we're called to be believers who learn to grow in our faith relationship with the Lord. However, the emphasis I want to put forth is more that of a commitment to action, like Yeshua and the disciples in the first century. That they were learners, but they were not merely learners as you would in, in a school setting where you sit and absorb, where there is some give and take, but it's mostly uh, you receiving from the teacher this is very much the Jewish notion of, of a rabbi who collects disciples, who teaches them, who walks with them, who models for them what it means to, um, to live a godly and a righteous life. And then when he passes on or she passes on, then, th then um, the disciples then reach out to others and teach others and make others disciples, not so much of themselves, but of their rabbi. This is what we see, of course, 
played out in a couple of places. Um, in Matthew 28, where Yeshua tells us, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, immersing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. In other words, we cannot make disciples if we ourselves have not learned to be disciples of Yeshua. Second Timothy 2.2, And the things you have heard, you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to reliable men who will also be qualified to teach others. So this is by way of introduction into the message and the passage that Linda read to us. And I want to pause for a minute and uh, take, uh, take a moment to pray. Lord God, we long to grow in grace and knowledge of you, to know, to know you more fully during the next few months, during the next year, the next several years, to become mature men and women of God who know how to hear from you, who know how to follow you wholeheartedly in whose life your kingdom will expand and through whom you will receive much honor and glory. We pray, Lord God, for the beginning of this, this process, this ongoing process. We pray for ears to hear for each of us in Yeshua's name. Amen. So a bit of background when... Um, when we consider the passage that Linda read to us, first of all, this is set in the context of Yeshua coming down from Galilee and setting his face like flint, preparing to go to Jerusalem. Now, he had been in Jerusalem several times for, for several of the holidays, um, Passover and, and Sukkot, Feast of Tabernacles, but this is the last time that here, uh, as, as a first century Jew, Yeshua is going to be coming to Jerusalem. And he knows what to expect, that he will be rejected, he will be beaten, he will die a, a, the death of a criminal. And yet, he doesn't have a passive-aggressive double-minded approach, mostly, although there is a moment where he agonizes at, at the garden, but he heads in that direction. And this begins at uh, chapter 9 of, of, this, uh, of Luke. And as he goes along, there are all kinds of opportunities for him to talk and share the word of God. And folks, this is something I want to park for a minute. Um, our lives provide us with all kinds of opportunities to share what God is doing in our life. Because if the grace of God is being poured into us, the right and proper and normal thing is for God's grace to overflow and impact other people. And that we will have opportunities to tell people about what God is doing in our life. And I, I uh, like everybody else, I'm fascinated 
that Monday morning, everybody and their mother has to tell you all about the various nuances of the Broncos and what the Broncos did, what the Broncos didn't do. And everybody's eager. If we would only take that Broncomania and use, take a smidge of it and use some of it so that it becomes Yeshua mania. So Yeshua talks to everybody. He talks to the Pharisees on a couple of occasions here. Um, one of the big cheeses invites him over for dinner. And uh, he talks to, um, to the masses. He talks to the disciples. And, uh, and here... He is talking to crowds. And what we need to remember is that Yeshua was very dynamic, very charismatic. And he had goods to deliver that nobody else did. And you see that at the very beginning of his ministry, um, where we see in Matthew chapter 4, that he went throughout Galilee teaching the synagogues, uh, preaching the good news and healing every disease and sickness among the people. The result was, this is Matthew 4, the result was that news about Yeshua spread all over Syria. And people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, who were suffering severe pain, demon-possessed, having seizures, paralyzed. He healed them. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. Folks, we have to connect the dots to understand what we're talking about here. People didn't get in their Lear jets and, and fly to see Yeshua. We talk about days and days of travel, often by foot, and thousands and thousands of people are following Yeshua. Why? Because nobody else was doing this. There were some examples of miracle-working rabbis in those days, but what they had to offer was, was piddly, was very minimal. You know, Honey the miracle worker, he would draw a circle and supposedly rain would come in the, outside the circle and et cetera, et cetera. Yeshua is doing something that is dramatic, that people were hurting, and they knew that they can come and seek him and receive healing. People are still needy, folks. The needs around us are still massive. Not that we necessarily have Yeshua's kind of power, although we've been authorized and given some power. But we need to remember that we are Yeshua's representatives. In any event, coming back, to Yeshua's travel, part of the picture is that he was not he was not moved. This is not an ego building uh, exercise for him. He was moved with compassion when he looked out and saw the multitude who were like sheep without a shepherd. Yes, he was moved with compassion, but the first thing that determined Yeshua's approach was not his compassion, 
but his solid rock, absolute commitment to hear and to do the Father's will. So, no, he didn't heal every single individual and minister to every single need because the issue for him was first and foremost to hear and to listen what the Father wanted and to do what he'd been called to do. And there were times when Yeshua needed to thin out the crowds, which is uh, not a classic approach to making friends and influencing people. Um, why? Because Yeshua knew that a lot of the folks who were coming were curious. The, you know, they... They wanted their their uh, their. Uh, they wanted to be titillated. You know what's what's the latest thing that's happening? Or perhaps there were people who had legitimate needs, but very 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 few were truly committed. And there were times when Yeshua felt the need and instruction from the Father. To thin out the crowds, this is somewhat like what um, Gideon did. If you remember, Gideon had thousands and thousands of people. God says to him, you have too many people. Gideon is saying, well, God, uh, the opposition is ten times as large, and you want me to thin out the crowds? God said yes. How did Yeshua do that? He did that by some of the things he had to say. Um, Yeshua's teaching was often what we would call edgy. It was over the top. He made some statements that were shocking. You know, for instance, in John six fifty four, he says, uh, "Eat my flesh and drink my, and drink my blood," uh, which is kind of odd, very very odd. And a number of the so called disciples who were really the curious, were turned off by that, and they walked away. Um, part of what we see in Yeshua's teaching, he was an itinerant teacher, and part of the picture is he was not sitting in a synagogue or in a school environment where he was laying everything out for them, but as an itinerant teacher, uh, he used shock value to grab people's attention. Another example, of course, if your eye offends you, pluck it out. Well, uh, not real comfortable uh, statement for someone to, to listen to you. But again, part of the picture is that Yeshua was looking for people who were sold out for the kingdom of God who were willing to become his disciples in a true sense of the word. And what defined Yeshua? Again, his absolute commitment to do the Father's will. If you recall, after the situation with the Samaritan woman, um, the disciples came, came back. They, got some, they went to King Supers or uh, Safeway got some vittles, they came back and said, uh, Lord, aren't you hungry? And he said, no. My food, what nourishes me, 
is my commitment to do the Father's will. That's numero uno in any and all circumstances. And so Yeshua in this chapter has wanted to communicate the same things to his disciples. Your life does not belong to you. I know that's highly un-American and un-21st century. But this is the message that Yeshua delivered to his disciples. to the listeners in, in that point in, in that during that time verse 26 if anyone comes to me does not hate his father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters yes even his own life he cannot be, be my disciples and you can understand why Yeshua's opposition throughout the centuries jumped on that and said what kind of a rabbi is this uh, he is transgressing the fifth commandment Honor your father and your mother. Now, is Yeshua in fact saying that his disciples need to hate? Let's first of all pause and remember that when we interpret the word of God, we need to compare it across the board. We need to see what Yeshua is saying here, what Yeshua is saying in other places. So Yeshua has a lot to say about the need of his disciples to love. He says, love your neighbors, which obviously goes back to the Torah. Love your enemies. Love each other. And then he quotes from, from the Torah that if you uh, curse your father and your mother, you must be put to death. This is not exactly uh, 21st century mommy dearest kind of an approach. So no, he is absolutely not saying to people that they should hate. What he's saying is, in comparison to their love for him, everything else will look like hatred. This is an issue of priority because part of what he's saying here also is, Unless you hate your own life, you cannot be my disciple. Well, that's counterintuitive, counter-Torah, in fact. So Yeshua, again, is saying, if you want to be my disciple, someone who claims to follow me, then your number one commitment in life is not your strategy, your agenda, your plans and purposes, but God's strategy, God's plans and purposes, what it is that God has for you, which means that anything and everything, and I know this is radical, folks, but anything and everything that you have in mind to accomplish in life, you first and foremost lay before God and say, Lord, um, here it is. What are you saying about it? Is this something you want? Is this something you don't, you don't want? If you don't want, let's pitch it. If you want it, if, if this is from you, please strengthen and confirm it and establish it. That's high standards. In fact, Yeshua here and in other places sets the bar so high that it is impossible to jump. Why? Because... 
Yeshua demands absolute obedience as the God of Israel demanded from his people. Remember what the Ten Commandments said that the Lord says, I am Elkanah, the jealous God. In other words, I don't tolerate this pluralism business that you can worship me today and and if you're bored or if you don't feel like I am delivering, then you go to the uh, shrine and you worship Baal. Now, what does that mean, practically speaking, for us? Well, what it means is that any and in, in, in all times in our life, the one who takes top billing is not us but God. He's the one who calls the shots. That our commitment, our goal in life, is from the moment we get up in the morning till we go to bed at night is to say, Lord, what is it that you have in mind for me today? And I know you can go mishugi with this. You can consider yourself to be an automaton, you know, like one of the androids waiting for instruction and having your ears set. But this is the amazing thing of how God operates with us. He somehow is able to speak our language and it is a process that the more of God we want, the more he is eager and willing to come in. And guide and direct our steps. So you, you may have heard the statement that I've quoted from time to time that you sow a thought, you reap an act. You sow an act, you reap a habit. You sow a habit, you reap a lifestyle. In other words, you learn to cultivate habits that are life-giving and spiritually profitable that take you in the right direction. One of the things that I've begun to do is as I come up to the office, I pray, Lord, may your will be done today. May you receive all the honor and glory in everything that takes place here. In our congregational office, as other places where people do work can get pretty busy, And we simply need to make a decision. What do I want to see take place in my life? Is it the, the, the goals and the objectives that I have cultivated and I have uh, decided that this is the route and I, that I want to go? And then invite God to kind of bless it, you know, sprinkle a little pixie dust. Or if I'm a little off and then say, okay, you need to come this way. No, folks, we're talking about radical, radical commitment to God that invites him to take charge of our thought process, our decision-making. And it is a process, folks. By the grace of God, a year from now, 
you'll be farther along in how you understand and hear the voice of God, how you respond to him. And you will change from, okay, God, you're putting a gun to me. I have no choice. I'll do it. To an attitude that says, yes, God, I want what you want. I'm in partnership with you. Then Yeshua goes on to talk about carrying the cross. And for us in the Jewish context, this doesn't go real smoothly. Well, think about what Yeshua is really saying. He's talking about commitment all the way that takes you to martyrdom, which we fortunately in this country have no clue what is involved. But a first century Jew understood martyrdom. Hanukkah, for instance, there's a story of Hannah and their seven sons who preferred to die rather than submit to Antiochus Epiphanes' uh, orders. In Judaism, that's called Kiddush Hashem, the sanctification of the name, which simply means that by your actions, God looks real good. People look at your life and they see something extra special in your life and, and God, receive all, God receives all kinds of, of honor. Again, it has to do with surrender to the Father's will. Then Yeshua concludes this section by saying, in the same way any of you who does not give up everything cannot be my disciple. Again, folks, people go mishugi with this. You know, does the Lord say that I should sell everything and go find a desert commune um, and sit there and pray all day long, which is the, the way people did uh, the first several hundred years and still do today? No, Yeshua certainly isn't implying that we pull back from society. In fact, remember that Yeshua was called a wine-bibber, a wine-chugger. You know, he hung out with, with the prostitutes and the tax collectors, the low lives. So he's not saying that we need to uh, steer clear of anybody that has a little bit of dirt because by that definition, we would steer clear of ourselves because we have dirt. But again, it simply means that we grasp the basic reality that our life does not belong to us. It belongs to God. He has the title deed the moment we said, yes, I'm going to follow you. The title deed belongs to him. And because we know who God is, we're not fearful of that. We know that our Heavenly Father loves us passionately. He knows us inside and out. He knows how we are wired. He knows what is best for us. So when we yield control, then we know we are diving into his safety net and the result is going to be awesome. So a question to throw out 
for your consideration. Do you have areas in, in your life that you consider to be off-limit to the Lord? That you have hung a sign that says, no trespassing. In other words, God, this is a spiritual part of my life, and you can have it. Um, and, and, and this part is mine, and I have control over it, and I know what to do. And if something goes wrong, I can fix it. But this one is yours. And we snicker. But that's us, isn't it? We're silly. And God eventually gets a hold of us and says, okay, we've worked in this area. Now, I finally got your attention and you woke up and smelled the coffee. Okay, now let's do that here in this area. So what do, you, what do you desire to see? And this is not New Year's resolution, I promise. What, what do you desire to see come about in this coming year or two years? What is at the top of the list for you? What, what, what is most significant? What gives you the greatest joy and fulfillment? You know, I, I used to chafe. I used to be almost angry at Yeshua's words when he states in John chapter 10, my sheep hear my voice and they follow me. You know, that's such a simple statement. It doesn't require someone to be nuclear physicist. And I'll listen to all kinds of people, including my sister, and say, uh, the Lord talked to me. The Lord told me this. The Lord told me that. The Lord told me the other. And I'll look and say, uh, Lord, so what am I, chopped liver? <laughs> And at some point, I realized, you know, if I was quiet long enough, and if I had the, a faith attitude, trusting God, then maybe, just maybe, he could somehow find a way to communicate to me since he wired me. And I've seen that happen, which is, for me, it's like parting the Red Sea. But this is part of the process, folks. We, we want to see the hand of God. We want to see the power of God. We want to see awesome things take place in our life. But we're not willing to yield control. And, and I know this sounds harsh to die to our agenda. But remember, Yeshua had to go to the cross First of all, before there will be the resurrection. You want to see the power of God at work in your life, in our life? Let's learn to invite the Lord more fully into every area of our life. Yield control to Him. And then say, okay, God, I am in your corner. I am committed to partnership with you. I want to do your will. I may not get it all the time but that's where I want to go that's where my nose is pointing I believe that awesome and wonderful things will take place as we learn to do that let's pray
Lord God, we, we thank you that you're amazingly patient. Lord God, you, um, you see how we're clueless and often how we're stubborn. And you're patient, waiting, continually at work to both to will and to do your good pleasure. We pray, Lord God, for each one of us here that you would fill us with a sense of awe of what it means for you to be at work, a sense of expectation and, and, and joy, Lord God, and at the same time, the deeper degree of trust in you to, so that we relinquish control more and more fully to you, Lord, and invite the working of your Ruach, your spirit in our life. We pray, Lord God, that you would receive all kinds of honor as that takes place in our life, as people see what you're doing with us and as they seek you and desire to learn of you as well. We ask all of this in the name of Yeshua. Amen.